Open the Word of God with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Let us introduce ourselves to this study this morning with this verse when Paul is brought to the Areopagus in Athens, a hill there next to the Temple of Mars, and so it's also called Mars Hill. And let's follow our brother Paul in fulfilling the mystery of the gospel in that it was preached unto the Gentiles and it was believed on in the world. And we believe it as well. Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Amen. Because they didn't know him. We have recently completed a commentary on Ecclesiastes and reviewed Solomon's inspired philosophy. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, mocked and rejected the world's philosophy, as he's going to do right here in Acts chapter 17. We recently examined the seven sacraments of Rome in the past three services with you to expose their diabolical heresies and lies. And here is God's ridicule of their blasphemies in, in the slides that we've prepared. Paul, by the Spirit, said the Roman Catholic Church is under strong delusion to believe lies. And we've been saved from both the world's philosophies and the world's religion. Amen. Because Roman Catholicism is the world's largest religion. Superstition is unreasoning. That's an interesting word to, to release on Mars Hill. <laughs> unreasoning. Because the Bible tells us there are unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Faith is the most reasonable thing possible because it admits what you can't see with that little ball of mucous membrane in your eye socket. Because the important things in this universe are outside of what that little muscular thing can see. Superstition is unreasoning awe or fear of something unknown, mysterious, or imaginary, especially in connection with religion. Religious belief or practice founded upon fear or ignorance. An irrational religious system. A false pagan or idolatrous religion. Perfect word for Mars Hill. Both worldly philosophy and Roman Catholicism are superstitious to a devilish degree against the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the apostolic faith that's recorded in the Bible, denies and defies both devilish lies. Though they greatly outnumber us, the worldly philosophers greatly outnumber us, Roman Catholicism greatly outnumbers us, they outpublish us, they have greater intellects, and they can kill us like they did during the Dark Ages, and we just had related to us by our brother. We should never take a back seat to philosophy or Roman Catholicism because we have the truth. Amen. Truth that Solomon and Paul both destroyed. Our leader and commander is far above their politics, education, military, and wealth. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right. He is called our leader and commander in Isaiah chapter 55. Noah had only his family totaling eight. 
when God sent a watery grave on every single enemy of his. And we should expect the same to happen when the last one of us is born, born again, and is ready to be received up into heaven. But let's let our passion, let's let our passion for the truth result in living that truth and sharing that truth. We want to live it. And we usually put our emphasis on living the truth. But I want you to share the truth. Who's the last person you shared the truth with? You meet people. You work with people. You work beside them. You talk about different things. Why aren't they here with you? There are some Dionysiuses in Greenville. There are some Damaruses in Greenville. Why aren't they here? And so I want to push us that our spirits will be stirred within us. Your spirits will be stirred within you like they were in Paul when he was in this city and saw it wholly given to idolatry. Now I want to set a little background for Acts chapter 17 that I hope will engage you. So I'm going to show you a map of the Mediterranean area and let you see where the Apostle Paul went and rejoice in his labors. This is the only slide you're going to get today, but enjoy it with me. It is a wonderful map. It's one of the best maps I have found of Paul's second preaching trip or missionary journey, as some like to say. First of all, if you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, two chapters, you will find that there was a prayer meeting in the church at Antioch. That is Antioch of Syria. That is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. If you look at a map today, Syria is the nation that lies to the north of Israel at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. In that church that was at Antioch, there was a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. And the Lord separated Paul and Barnabas to go and preach to the Gentiles. And they did that for two chapters. Then at the end of chapter 14, they came back to that church at Antioch and rehearsed with them what the Lord had done on their trip. Acts chapter 15 is the council at Jerusalem, which was initiated by the Apostle Paul because Jewish legalists had come out of Jerusalem, traveled 300 miles north, and were wrecking havoc in the church at Antioch, saying that those Gentile converts had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. After that council, that council commissioned Paul to go back to Antioch and say that all the apostles and elders in Jerusalem defy, deny the Jewish legalists, and there were only four things they wanted Gentiles to keep, and that's all taught in chapter 15. Barnabas had a strong contention with Paul because Barnabas practiced nepotism, wanting his nephew to come along named John Mark. Paul didn't believe in nepotism, so he wouldn't accept John Mark, and so they separated company, and we come to chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, we can find the Apostle Paul with the decrees from Jerusalem traveling up into Cilicia. There's Cilicia. That's where Paul was born, in Tarsus of Cilicia. And so he travels this route. He comes over to Derby, And who does he pick up at Derby? Timothy. He finds Timothy, who has a great reputation among the brethren that were at Derby and Lystra, and he brings him along with him. And he circumcises Timothy because everyone knew that his father was an unbelieving Greek and his mother and his grandmother were the great instruments of faith in his life with the scriptures. And so Timothy is now accompanying Paul along with Silas 
It's Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they continue on through Galatia. Now you know that you have a book in your Bible called Galatians, which is to the churches of Galatia. And so there were churches in that forest green area that the Apostle Paul had established. And Paul goes through Lystrum and Iconium and comes to Antioch in Pisidia, where he preached his first sermon that's recorded in the Bible. Do you all know this? Good. But I want to review it with you so that you can really know it. His first sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 13, and it's in Antioch right there in Pisidia, not Antioch of Syria. And you want to keep those two separate. Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem, is Paul's home church. Antioch of Pisidia is where he went in, in chapter 13, sat down the back with Barnabas, and the leader of that synagogue, after they had gone through their ordinary ceremony, asked, men, brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Yes, I do. The apostle Paul said and stood up and preached Acts 13. It's a wonderful chapter. The Jews hated what he preached. Gentiles loved it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's that whole section right there at Antioch in Pisidia. Now he goes into Asia and comes up here to the border of Bithynia. Can you see Bithynia there at the top? And this area right here is called Mysia. And I want to read to you a few verses from Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. He is coming along that route at the border of Bithynia and Asia. Asia is a province of the Roman Empire. I hope you can see this map that the Mediterranean Sea, you only get half of it. Because the boot of Italy and Malta and the straits going into the Atlantic Ocean is to the left of the map that I'm showing you. This is only the right half, the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea. But in, as Paul's going along up here in, in the area of Mysia, northern Asia, the province of Asia, listen to what the Bible says. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and Galatia, right in here, since they had gone through that area and were come up there to the top of Asia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, Paul tried to turn left to go down into Asia. Paul tried to go down here where there were the seven churches of Asia. The Lord wouldn't let him. The Holy Ghost said, no, I don't want you to go south. So he tried to go north into Bithynia. In the next verse, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So there's Paul coming from the east. He can't go south. He can't go north. He can only go one direction because he's coming from the east. So we've got three points of the compass covered. What's the one direction the Lord's going to let him go? West. What does the rest of the world call us? The West. Because we're in the West here, and the Apostle Paul brought the gospel west. The gospel started in Asia, if you wanted to limit yourself to seven continents. Of course, they've made the Middle East today some transcontinental area that's neither Africa, nor Asia, nor Europe. But let's just limit ourselves to seven continents like everyone else has done for about the last 6,000 years. Right. The gospel started in Asia, and it was quickly taken to Africa by the Ethiopian eunuch. And if you remember what was at Pentecost, there were people from all over that part of the earth. 
at Pentecost. But we're with Paul right now on his second trip in around 50 AD. He can't go south and he can't go north. The Lord won't let him go into Bithynia and won't let him come down into Asia. So he passes through Mysia and comes to Troas. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Come over. It was the Continental Divide. It's called the Dardanelles. It's an incredibly important place in world history. It's called the Hellespont by the ancient Greeks. It is this area right here. And I'm sorry that I have picked such a terrible color for you to see, but we can remedy that. We can try red. Well, that's a red line for Paul. But anyway, we can try. I'm irritated now. We'll try black right there. That's called the Dardanelles. That's called the Hellespont. That's a very important divide between Europe and Asia. That is the divide right there. This Bosphorus Strait up here to get into the Black Sea, that's not nearly as important as this big one. Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. crossed over the Dardanelles right there and had the first battle with the Persians at the River Granicus. And that's been taught to you before. But we're with Paul, we're not with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was going the wrong direction. But we appreciate everything he did that God had ordained that he would do to overthrow the Persian Empire. So the Apostle Paul comes on over and takes shipping, crosses over the Dardanelles, comes over here to Samothrace, takes shipping, comes to Neapolis, and then to Philippi. Now we're up here at Philippi. That city's named after the father of Alexander the Great. It was a principal city in Macedonia. And he preaches the gospel there in Acts 16, you know. We know about Lydia, verse 14. We know about the jailer, verse 31. And there was a church started there, But because there had been so much trouble around Paul, the brethren wanted to get Paul out of Philippi and farther south. So they took him over here through Amphipolis, through Apollonia, all this is in your Bibles, to Thessalonica. And if you started Acts chapter, if you read Acts 17 last night and read the first part, you read about him being in Thessalonica and going into the synagogue. And we have explained to us that his ordinary manner was, was to go into synagogues and preach to monotheistic worshipers of Jehovah that believed in the Old Testament scriptures, Jews and Gentiles. They were Jews and Gentile proselytes. And that was his manner of evangelism. That is so key and so important, but it's not part of our study today as to why we do things the way that we do them and why you aren't at the malls on Saturdays handing out tracts. Because Paul never went to a mall. He went to synagogues. Say, but he went to a market. He didn't go to a market like the Haywood Mall. He went to a market where people gathered together to discuss religion and to discuss philosophy. But anyway, we're at Thessalonica. He gets into trouble at Thessalonica. So he comes over here to Berea. And the Bible tells us the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Some bad men from Thessalonica went over to Berea to stir up the people there. So Paul's being chased by bad men, wicked men, unreasonable men that had not faith. And so the brethren take him all the way down here to Athens. And there we are. We are now in Achaia, the southern half of what is modern Greece. The southern half's called Achaia. 
It's used commonly in the Bible. And the northern half is Macedonia. And Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea are in Macedonia. And Corinth and Athens are in Achaia, the southern half. Are you thankful that you have heard the gospel in the Western Hemisphere? Amen. How in the world did the gospel get to the Western Hemisphere but by Paul's laborious efforts to take the gospel out of Asia, travel all that way, even past his hometown of Tarsus, even past Cilicia where he was raised, into Phrygia, into Galatia, into Asia, cross over the Dardanelles into Europe and preach the gospel, imprisoned, stripped naked, beaten, imprisoned, stripped naked, beaten, stoned, beaten, left for dead to preach the gospel in Europe. And it came to us. And yes, we know that he went to Rome after this. He intended to go to Spain. We don't even know where he went after what Acts records for us. We do know, we do know from historical records that in the British Isles, they had representatives of the Apostle Paul in the first century because there were representatives of the British Empire in Rome where Paul was stationed because Julius Caesar had conquered Britain and established outposts there 50 B.C. Wonderful church history in Wales. There was a visit paid in the 5th century A.D., by a Roman Catholic emissary that met 1,000 Baptist preachers from Wales who defied the authority of the Pope of Rome and who defied giving religion to our children. That's what we've just been over the last few weeks. Anyway, this map is going to be on the website linked at the top of our outline for today. It's very useful. The colored provinces just help break it up for you to see Antioch. After Paul was done at at Athens in chapter 17, Acts 18 tells us that he was and he was there for a while. Then he came over to Ephesus, and from Ephesus he sailed back to Caesarea and went up to Jerusalem, it says, and then he went to Antioch and recounted the efforts of his second missionary trip. He went up to Jerusalem because you can see the mountains at Jerusalem sitting on. And Caesarea has got to be at sea level because it's at sea level. It's, at a, it's a seaport. And so we have that account. Thank you, Lord, for witty inventions for us to be able to see and understand your Bible better than we could before. Now I want to take, let's get into Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. The first part of Acts 7 about Berea. And then it, came, it comes down to them leaving Paul in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him. So he's there alone. So he's there alone. Does he golf? Does he eat for pleasure? Does he take a vacation? Does he waste his time? No. He's looking around and observing this city, the center of learning of the world at that time, and it's, he's stirred up about it. And so we have verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, Paul observed that this great worldly city of learning was obsessively addicted to idolatry. That's the worship of idols. 
Historians, like I've already mentioned, said that this city had more idols, more temples to idols, and more activities for idols than any other city on earth. Some historians said there were more idols in Athens than there were citizens in Athens. It was just a city wholly given over to idolatry. And all I do to quote historians is to confirm what Paul said. I don't need confirmation myself. When Paul and Luke says that it's wholly given over to idolatry, I'm entirely convinced. And I wouldn't care what any historian said to the contrary, because I know that this is true history given to us. And I want you to love history. The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles of Jesus Christ, 28 chapters of history of what the churches were like in the world up to about 60 A.D. It's a wonderful book in the Bible. You should embrace it. It starts immediately with the Lord Jesus Christ ascending up into heaven and promising power to men, and the men with the power, the apostles of Jesus Christ, turned the world upside down. And so at verse 16, Now while Paul waited for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Paul did not care at all about the interesting things of architecture or philosophy that were in this city. Can you ignore the noise around you to discern the situation and trends of religious compromise? Are you able to ignore all the exciting things that you can do and all the toys that you can use to play with in America to sense and see and perceive and discern the trend of things in our country? Those you work with? The Baptists in this city? What's happening? Is your spirit stirred within you? We want to be like Paul. How could critical thinkers like the Greeks, willing to consider most any idea, end up vain idolaters? How can critical thinkers end up worshiping a chunk of stone? Because when you turn away from the living God, He is going to rewire you. He is going to rewire you, and Romans chapter 1 gives us all the details about it. And at the moment, I'm not referring to sodomy. That will be the second service from Genesis 19. At the moment, I'm talking about worshiping the creature more than the Creator and having their hearts darkened. Why was Athens so dark? Because they had turned from the true and living God to one of their own making. This had the effect of stirring up Paul's spirit to declare the truth to these ignorant pagans. Do you have a spirit that hates the enemies of truth and wants to do something about it? Amen. Proverbs 28 and verse 4 tells us that when we live a righteous life, we contend with the wicked. And we endorse and support the truth. But we can do more than that. You work with people. You live near people. Do you ever share the truth with them? Is your spirit stirred up? Do you ever drop something on them? You don't have to quote a Bible verse to them. Paul's going to show you that the Bible is quite worthless with pagans. When you find a Bible believer and they're not worshiping God in truth, then you can pull him aside and show him the Bible and show him the way of God more perfectly like Aquila and Priscilla did for Apollos. Because Apollos was preaching the word of God in error. But if they don't believe the word of God, then use something else. Paul's going to use a prop like one of their, their uh, altars. Paul's going to quote their poets. Paul's just going to reason. Paul, here's Paul's seven steps. Here's how Paul reasons in seven steps. You are ignorant. There's a creator God. There's a God that controls all providence. 
He's knowable, as your own poets have said. You better repent, because he's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ, his son. Seven steps. It's phenomenal. Does it get you? Listen, if I could just share half of my excitement with you, some of you would pass out right now. I'm, I'm serious. I want seven steps. You're ignorantly worshiping God. You're ignorantly worshiping God. God has to be a creator, therefore the way you're worshiping him doesn't work. God is also providentially involved in all the activities of nations, and so he can't be worshipped with silver and gold. This God, because your poets have said we are the offspring of God, must be a personal God that can be worshipped. Therefore, you better repent, because you've been blaspheming him with this ridiculous stone stuff. Because he's going to judge the world by the man that he's ordained to judge the world, Jesus Christ, and he's given you assurance of this fact by raising him from the dead. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is our brother Paul preaching in Athens. He doesn't get up there and say anything good about them. He just tells them they're ignorant, and I'm going to show you the truth. You want to hear what I have to say? Your men that found me in the marketplace and wanted me to bring and wanted to bring me to the rest of you, I have some things to share with you. Sit down and hear me out. And he let him have it. He didn't offend them. He's not violent here in offending them. He just he doesn't pull any punches. Do any of you have fathers or brothers or employees or colleagues or neighbors? Or people at the gym? Or distinctives? To share the truth with them. What if Paul had said, I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't want to go to Mars Hill. I'm just a little lowly Jew. What am I going to do on Mars Hill? What if he was scared? What would have happened to Damaris? What would have happened to Dionysius? What would have happened to the others that left with them? Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. Stir up this church. Verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Therefore, the first word, what's therefore, therefore? Every time you see a therefore, ask what the therefore is therefore. It's drawing a conclusion from verse 16. He was stirred up and he had to do something about it. So he picked his three ways of doing it. He picked his three methods and his three audiences. What were they? The Jews in the synagogue, the proselytes in the synagogue, and in the marketplace, anyone that would discuss religion or philosophy with him. And that's verse 17. He assessed his three differing options to oppose the rampant idolatry that he had observed. He defended Jesus Christ in the synagogue to monotheistic Jews, as was his usual manner, shown to us in the first four verses of this chapter. He included devout Gentile proselytes connected to the Jews' religion. And so when you look at verse 17, and it says, He disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons. What's a devout person? It's a Gentile that's not an idolater that's worshiping Jehovah as a Gentile proselyte. They're devout Gentiles. And if you run through the book of Acts, you're going to find this repeatedly. Like in Acts 13, when he was in Antioch of Pisidia. Then he went to the market, since there was no internet or other forum, to preach Christ. 
Since it was Athens, as it's going to be explained, they just wanted to hear new stuff all the time. So he had a ready audience. And he found it at the marketplace where they would discuss new things. Verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now we've got several words in this verse that we want to understand. The word philosophy, the, the group of people called Epicureans, and a group of people called Stoics. They were philosophers. It was a school of philosophy called Epicureanism or Stoicism. Philosophy, we've already been over it when I reviewed Ecclesiastes with you, but it's the love, study, or pursuit of wisdom, or the knowledge of things and their causes, whether theoretical or practical. The department of knowledge that deals with ultimate reality or the general causes and principles of things. The system which a person chooses to govern his life. It's why am I alive? What's my purpose? Is there a God? What should I do about it? It's all those questions are philosophy. And so there were philosophers in Athens. And there were philosophers three and four hundred years before this with the names that you're familiar with. And there were a whole lot of names that you're not familiar with. But the ones that you're familiar with, like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, were 400 years before this event. The city was given to learning and to philosophical thinking. But look where it led them. And I love this. Here we are. Let's, you know, what if we were to stand up and, and state out our professions? We're a pitiful little church. But you know the, the amount of truth we have sitting in front of us? Amen. We have so much truth, and we are so blessed. If we were to stand, if everyone was to stand that has a theological degree, first of all, I would take a seat. But everyone that had a theological degree to shout out that theological degree, we don't have any. But we have the truth. And look where philosophy got the Athenians. To the most idolatrous city on earth, worshiping chunks of stone with silver and gold and the graven images of men. And Paul's about to mock them for it. Embrace the truth. Never be ashamed of the truth. You just need to become wise and creative on how to share the truth with others. Right. It's called small pill evangelism out of one side of my mouth. Out of the other side, it's called dropping appropriate bombs at the right time. But the bombs should, you know, you got to, this is wisdom. Sometimes you drop bombs on them. I've shared with you before just a little bit about dropping bombs. Just little bombs. You don't have to say anything. Just make them think. Make them think. The Athenians hadn't thought. They hadn't thought. The connection is so easy. They had a lie in their right hand they couldn't let go. That's Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, that says anyone that worships a stone idol or a wood idol has a lie in their right hand and can't let go. They haven't even thought that I have made this thing. I got sweaty. I had to take a vacation before I finished it. It wore me out making this stone image, and now I'm going to fall down and worship it? The Lord says, oh yeah, because you can't even see that you made it, and now you're calling on it to help you. When making it, you couldn't even survive. You had to go home and eat, take a nap, get a siesta in order to finish the project. That's all in Isaiah 44, and you've been there before. Okay. 
Epicureanism is, let's just summarize it very simply, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Stoicism is, self-discipline gets us closer to being like God. And so you've got monks of the Catholic Church following Stoicism, and you've got America following Epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, there's no afterlife, let's just enjoy what we've got right now. Others discerned his unheard of, some mocked him. What's this babbler going to say? Because he wasn't one of them. He was a Jew. So they called him a babbler. Don't worry if somebody calls you a babbler. Just babble something good to them. Others discerned that Paul had an unheard of religion concerning the risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Notice in that 18th verse, he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. To John chapter 20 and John 21, the importance of the resurrection can hardly be overstated. Wherever the apostles went, they wanted to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ because our religion and its head rose from the dead, has defeated death. Would you like to buy into that system? Yes, we would. Because our defeated death. What a privilege to have the head of our religion put to death in this world, having told in advance how long he would be in the grave and that he would come forth and he came forth. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs over 40 days. The apostles, including Paul, had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. There's nothing quite like the resurrection of Jesus compared to man-made religion. The founders of all of the religions, can, their burial places can be found. They make treks to them. They mark their graves. Our Lord doesn't have a grave that can be marked. They don't even know where he was for three days and three nights except for the tourist traps in Israel. Verse 19, and they took him. That is, the philosophers of Athens that were at the marketplace. They weren't all there because when they were all going to be together, they assembled on Mars Hill next to the Temple of Mars, which was called the Areopagus, to hear things and to adjudicate things. That's where their judges sat and ruled the city of Athens. And there was a very important man there that was so important, his name was Dionysius, the Areopagite. He's just waiting for a babbler. Just waiting for a babbler. You say, all I am is a babbler. Good, you're just like Paul. Now you don't have to be afraid. Just open your mouth and say something. Come on, drop a little bomb on them. Make them think. Take a rosary to work with you. You know, a briefcase can hold all kinds of stuff. A briefcase can easily hold an NIV for those that are using the NIV. If they're Bible readers and they're using the NIV, that, that was always a great pleasure. To go to lunch, take someone to lunch and open your briefcase. What's he going to pull out? A rosary this time? A crucifix? Or an NIV? Share the truth. Are you ashamed of it? Are you ashamed of the truth? They're all reprobates out there and the only elect in Greenville County are right here. Identify the problem and flush it. Be a babbler. Verse 19, they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Please tell us about this new doctrine of this Jesus of Nazareth and his resurrection from the dead. Tell us more about him. How did, they, how did he get to that place? He disputed 
with them in the marketplace. It tells us that in verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. He debated, but he, he didn't go around debating fools. He wasn't debating at the rescue mission with drunkards. He was debating in the synagogue, defending that the Old Testament scriptures taught Jesus of Nazareth. And he was doing the same with the Gentile proselytes. And with these philosophers exchanging ideas about religion and the character and the attributes of God, he got his two cents in there. He got more than two cents in there. He turned their worlds upside down, talking about the true and living God to the extent that he had and about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had seen him and that others had seen him across the Mediterranean Sea. And so they ask him, May we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is. These things that you're telling us, we haven't heard about them before, but we want to know more about these things. And verse 19 is the introduction to the fact that they want to hear. In Athens, they wanted to hear. And you know, the people that are around you, they want to hear something too. You just got to figure out what it is. They do. They would like to learn new angles on truth. You got to think of the small pills that you can share with them. We want to be like Paul. You're not called to be an apostle, but that doesn't mean that you can't wisely, carefully, graciously lead your life so that they know that you have a rep your reputation, your influence is very good, and then when you say something, they're prone to listen to you. That means you love your wife, you, you obey the traffic laws, you guard your speech, you're obedient to your boss, you respect authority, you pray for the government, you pray before you eat, you do all the things that let them know you're a Christian. And then you share a little something with them. You ask where they go to church. You go home and look at their website. Find out what Bible version they use. What else they have going on at that church. And you, you share some little thing with them. And this is Paul going to Mars Hill, brethren. It's a city wholly given to idolatry. This isn't a city given to Methodism. This isn't a city given to Mormonism. This is a city given to idolatry. Verse 20. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore what these things mean. Share with us more details of this religion that you've exposed us to in the marketplace. So they took him and brought him to Areopagus. And then we have the Holy Ghost words for us in verse 21, describing the character of the Athenians. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there, that's people traveling from other places to get to the center of learning in the world because the greatest degree of knowledge was to be obtained in Athens or Alexandria, Egypt at the time. And so they wanted to be in Athens. So there's two kinds of people there. Athenians were born there or lived there. Strangers were there visiting. And they did nothing but spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And the new thing was typically philosophical or religious. And so Paul's in the perfect place at the perfect time. And Paul and Silas and Timothy aren't there that he has to worry about. He's there alone, and he wants to do something. He sees the city wholly given to idolatry. He picks his three audiences, and he goes for it. And so they bring him to Areopagus, and he's at the center of learning of the known universe. If you took the whole universe and pinpointed that light of the universe, of our earth, down to one city on earth, where there was a great deal of intellectual and intelligent study with no results, 
you find Athens, Greece. Athens, Achaia, Greece. And Paul's there. And Paul's brought to the center of it. And Paul's brought to Mars Hill. And he has quite himself quite the audience. We've been in this chapter before. This is not new to all of you. It's new to some of you. But I want you to embrace it. And I want you to be thinking to yourself, I'm nothing like the Apostle Paul. I want to be more like him. Right. Who can I get in 2019? And I'm not talking about a Sunday school contest. Although that's better than doing nothing. Maybe we should start one. You all know when I'm speaking as a fool, when I'm trying to get your attention. And so he's got the perfect audience. Verse 22. What an opportunity. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. He's in the middle. They're all sitting around him. The philosophers and men of Athens. The city council. Ye men of Athens. I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Let me give you the seven steps he's going to take in just a few verses. We don't know how long he spoke. If he only spoke as long as what Luke gave us, he only spoke for three minutes. But he likely said more, just like there was likely more in the marketplace than just saying, I'm with Jesus of Nazareth, he rose from the dead. Luke just get, We get a summary here in the book of Acts. But here we are. You're, ignorant, you're worshiping ignorantly. God is a creator, and therefore God isn't worshipped like you're confining him. He's providentially active in all the affairs of nations. He's knowable because he's a personal God. We're his offspring, as your poets and prophets have said. Therefore, you better repent because there's a day of judgment coming. And he's assured all men of that day of judgment by raising his son from the dead that this world put to death. Oh, yes. That's a beautiful seven-step sermon. And look at how it leads up to the invitation. The invitation is judgment by Jesus Christ. Therefore, you better repent. There's nothing about heaven. Are you kidding? That's Jack Hiles' method. The apostles never preached about heaven to unbelievers and said, would you like to go to heaven when you die? That's what Jack Hiles preached at the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, when he wanted to outdo Pentecost. You can go online and find out about it. He, said, he claims that he annihilated the apostles at Pentecost, that he had 15,000 saved in one day. Go look it up. Jack Hiles, and go listen to his sermon. You will not believe the blasphemy that you're going to hear about his mother communicating to him after death about what heaven was like, and he was a Baptist. And he was a Baptist that spoke at Bob Jones University in the day. Jack Hiles has influenced thousands of Baptist pastors across America. They are the independent Baptists of the King James Version, no alcohol, soul-winning, bus ministry variety. Paul ain't going to tell them about heaven. Paul's going to tell them about a personal creator God that is active in the affairs of men, and he's going to judge the world, and they better repent. His opening statement does not show the least fear or reverence of these philosophers. He accused them, the most explorative thinkers on earth, of being very superstitious. Too superstitious. You're too superstitious. You guys have just gone beyond the bounds of all reason in the way that you're approaching the worship of God. Come on, man. Ye men of Athens, you can do better than that. He doesn't offend them. 
Or they'd have cut him off right then. They'd have cut his head off right then, possibly. He didn't do that. But he did get their attention that he was going to present something different and that he wasn't afraid of them. That he was operating by a spirit and representing a God and a system of truth that could stand up to the test of the wisest men on earth. Are you able to present the truth confidently so that people respect it? And as your life back it up? I'll try to get off that little hobby horse that I'm on. I am trying to get your attention. What in the world are we going to go through this for? Just for us to sit here and say, well, we've got Acts chapter 17 truth, and Jesus is our Lord, and the rest of this city's going to hell. That's not what we're going to be like as a church. That's not what we should be like at all. There's, there's, there's a lot of apollices out there that just need the way of God explained to them more perfectly. And there's some Damaruses and Dionysiuses out there that just haven't heard it before. They don't even know what to... They're just, they're just convicted in their hearts like Cornelius was, but they need some Peter to come and tell them a little bit. Superstition is unreasoning awe or fear of something unknown, mysterious or imaginary, an irrational religious system. Most modern versions corrupt this verse. Do you know that about your Bibles? Acts chapter 17 and verse... 22 is corrupted in most modern Bible versions. It reads this way at the end, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are very religious. That, those are their two words, very religious. The King James Bible says, Two, you exceeded boundaries of superstition. Right. I like that much better. Um, I do like Wycliffe's translation here of the 14th century, 200 years before Tyndale. He translated the Latin Vulgate, into English. By all things, I see you as vain worshipers. And John Darby, the founder of the Brethren Movement, I see you given up to demon worship. You know, I like those a little bit better than the modern versions, but there's only one version that's the truth. Right. And it's too superstitious. So we go to verse 23. For as I pass by, this is why I think you're too superstitious, men. Men of Athens, what I have just seen in this city tells me that you've exceeded ordinary, normal boundaries of religious superstition. Let me help you out. When I came here to Mars Hill, I passed by your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Who in the world is that? What are you worshiping an unknown God for? I'm going to use that as my prop. He didn't tell them this. You can read it, though, and understand it. I'm going to use this as my prop. Since they gave me this opening, they want to hear about my religion, they want to hear about Jesus Christ, and they acknowledge that there's probably some God out there they haven't discovered yet and given an alternate temple to, though they have thousands of them. So this unknown God, I'm going to declare him to you. I don't believe in one second, for one second that Paul is saying all the people sitting there with him are unconverted elect as I was taught. No, I don't believe that. That they're all unconverted elect, worshiping Jehovah, just like you worship him, just ignorantly. You know, he's just using it as a prop. Because he's going to tell them that they are ignorant. God's winked at their ignorance, and they better repent of their ignorance. What they're doing is wrong. He's simply using this altar as a prop to help introduce his speech to them. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, since you've given me this opening, him declare I unto you. If you're wondering that there's another God that might be out there that you haven't discovered yet and don't know anything about yet, 
I'll tell you about a God you don't know about. Just remember, if they were born again, if they were born again elect, unconverted, why weren't they worshiping at the synagogue? Jehovah worship existed in Athens. There were already Athenians converted in Athens. These are pagans with a few elect thrown in that are born again, either before or while Paul's preaching. Not by his preaching. I said while Paul's preaching. Because we have some responses here at the end. As we're going to find out. Paul did rely on hearsay about the Athenians. But he used a clear example he had found. We never have to rely on hearsay in this generation for all knowledge is available. The more we can deal with facts rather than blustering accusations, it's much better. The recent study of Rome's sacraments quoted and pictured their many practices. There's more truth accessible at you, with your mouse than ever before in the history of the world by a million times over the previous generation. Unbelievable. You don't have to go to a library anywhere. Any library you would go to is inferior to the Internet. You can find it so fast on the Internet, you can read any book you want. Google Books is making sure that every book, whether rare, out of print, writ, handwritten, is on the Internet for you to find. There's more truth accessible, available, and, and error to, to expose. You can look at the holy underwear of the Mormon church. You can see their underground baptistries for baptism for the dead by proxy. You can see everything you want. Bang, bang, bang with a few clicks of your mouse. We are blessed, but there's less truth than ever because men are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These ignorant and superstitious idolaters had an altar to cover any God they might miss. They were pantheists. Like the Stoics were pantheists. The Epicureans were deistic polytheists that allowed them to do anything they wanted. A polytheist is someone that believed in many gods. Paul accused them of ignorance. He simply used that prop to get started. Now verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So he starts with creation. Verses 22 and 23 are your ignorant. You're superstitious. You're too superstitious. You've passed beyond ordinary bounds in all these temples and even an altar to the unknown God. You're covering all bets that way. You think, how intelligent is that? There's a creator God. How do you think you got here? He, that is just so basic. You don't have to get complicated. Don't lay the incarnate sonship of Jesus on somebody at work. Try something a little simpler. Like, do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Or, do you know there's another Jesus? That'll open their eyes. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. Do you know there's another Jesus? Which one does your church worship? Now, that's a pretty big pill. <laughs> God that made the world and all things therein. The God that I'm telling you about is the Creator God. He starts with creation. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. These little, these little dog houses you have here in Athens made out of stone, the God of heaven that created all things doesn't live in them. He doesn't dwell in them. He's the supernatural ruler of the universe, so he's not confined to your stone temples. The immensity, complexity, and sovereignty of creation rejects need for any man. 
When Paul spoke of God as Lord of heaven and earth, he introduced his sovereignty right off the bat. My God is the creator of all things, and he's sovereign Lord over them all. Verse 25, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. The priests that you have here in Athens that are offering up sacrifices at these stone temples on these stone altars, do you really think you're giving something to the creator that made the heavens and the earth and giveth life to all and breath and he gives all things in his providential government of the world? Do you think you're actually giving him something? Do you think he needs the blood of bulls to Zeus, to Jupiter? Do you think he needs any? No, he doesn't need any of those things. And so Paul starts off where they are, and he progresses. And if a man has any potential, he is not going to be an evolutionist. He is going to know there's creation. Right. Now, I have a different approach than some that have gone before me. I would never waste my time on someone believing evolution. If their mind and heart is so blind and darkened, according to Romans chapter 1, that they believe in evolution, I don't have time for them because I could go watch Tom Brady and the Patriots. It's just me. I'll, I won't talk to an evolutionist. I don't care about them. Because it's, it shows a mental blindness and a heart rebellion at a level very different from where Paul would go. Paul went to the synagogue, monotheistic worshipers of Jehovah, Jews and Gentiles, the marketplace wanting to know about God and an altar to the unknown God, not an altar to the Big Bang Theory. An altar to the unknown God so that he can start off with, what's his first word? God. Verses 24 and 25, God that made the world, that's creation and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he's sovereign, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You guys are bringing wine drink offerings and pouring it out in an altar to God? Do you think God needs a drink from you? <clears throat> God created this whole world, including the Mediterranean Sea. He created Athens, and he created you, and he gave you breath and life. What are you going to give him? Just basic reasoning. This is providence. You've heard me use the word providence. Here it is. I use the word providence, I think it's 85 times in the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon referred to it so many times. Remember, there's, a, there's 126 pages in our outline on Ecclesiastes, so that's only one occurrence every page and a half. But providence is an important word. Providence is the next step of how God reveals himself to men. Providence is his involvement in their daily lives. Providence, the foreknowledge and beneficent care and sovereign government of God over all events of human existence. Divine direction, control, or guidance. Never forget this attribute and activity of God for revelation to men. Our brother said that our God is knowable, and he's revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to all men. He's revealed himself to all men with every language and every dialect by the sun, the moon, the stars, and his natural... The Bible says they are without excuse. Romans 1.20. Psalm 19 says that a sermon is preached every day and every night in every language by the natural creation. That's creation. Then there's providence. 
And he's going to mention providence next, but let me back up to chapter 14 and his first trip, Acts 14 and verse 17. Nevertheless, I'm going to back up to verse, well, let's back up to verse 15. Acts 14, 15. Sirs, this is Paul. His methods don't change when he's outside of a synagogue. Sirs, they're trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. The, citizen, the idolatrous citizens of this city, because they healed a man. So Paul tears his clothes in verse 14, runs into the middle of the mob, and he cries out, saying in verse 15 of Acts chapter 14, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That is beautiful. That's the providence of God. If you're a farmer, if you're a farmer and you have poured your sweat into your property and you don't have anything to eat, because you have put your seed corn in the ground. When God sends those clouds overhead and they water that earth with a nice gentle rain, it puffs up in a beautiful, good way every man's heart because he knows he needs the sprinkling system turned on and there's only one being in control of the sprinkling system and it's the Lord God. He sent us rain from heaven. Pagans. Pagans, there's a living God, pagans. He made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And he sends rain from heaven so that we can get food. And when we eat a good meal that we raised from our ground, it fills our hearts with food and gladness. Their hearts. That's a testimony that God is good. Right. Don't ever forget providence. It's more than just creation. It's more than just looking at the sun and saying, that's a big light bulb. There must be a God. It's also planning and eating a good meal, why does that taste so good, feel so good? Why is this so satisfying? There must be a God. You say, why don't men do that? Because after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. They don't want a God outside their control that will dictate the terms of their lives. Right. All you got to do is go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, says that men know, understand, they know it, they understand it, they have it in their possession, the knowledge of a supreme being called God. But they don't want to worship him. Okay, back to Acts chapter 17, because he's going to jump into providence again right here in verse 26. Paul is a, a different kind of... Providence, political providence, national providence, anatomical providence, blood providence, racial, national providence. Verse 26, this God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Credible wisdom in that verse. And he's telling those Athenians that whoever they think are barbarians on earth are all the same with them and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The boundaries of Achaia, the boundaries of Athens, the boundaries of Greece, all determined by the God of heaven. 
the times that, of things, of events that have taken place, like Alexander the Great raising the Macedonian Empire to the pinnacle of the world, it wasn't the Greeks. It's called the Greek Empire. It's called Grecia, but it was really Macedonia. Alexander the Great had 40,000 Macedonians. And then, it, then look what happened. Now it's pitiful little Greece and Rome's in charge of the world. And so the apostle is explaining there's a living God. He made heaven. He gave life and breath to all. He governs the boundaries of nations. And he's involved in the politics and events of all nations. He's determined the times before appointed. There's a God in this world. This world isn't running some course. He's not deistic. He's involved. He's active in all the events of life. He's a personal God. And he's engaged with nations and he's engaged with men. Verse 26. And why did he do all these things? What is this God that has created all things and he gave life and breath to us as creatures and he's made of one blood all nations and he's determined their activities, their wars that they win and their wars that they lose. Solomon would say that they can find no, nothing after God. Paul's going to say that they should seek the Lord. Verse 27 that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him. If there's a chance that they could feel him and catch up to him and find him, though he every one of us. That's the nobility of God right there in verse 27, explained to pagan idolaters. God created, God providentially is involved. He gave life and breath to us so that we are thinking, feeling, seeking, questioning persons all nations. He guides their national affairs. He's involved in their politics that they should seek the Lord. He has revealed himself. He's not the unknown God. He's a knowable God. He's the known God. He's the creator God. God. He's the providential God. And he's not very far from any one of us. Now that's about as far as he could push his line of reasoning without calling on some of their own prophets and poets. And so he does so in the next verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's quoting a Greek poet. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We have two plural poets, two quotations. In him we live and move and have our being. Do you know what's so wonderful about the internet? Did you know that you can go on to the Type in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 and just take the, first take the first result. And you can read the Greek work translated into English for you to see those words. Right. That the Apostle Paul, Paul pushed it as far as he could. Creation, providence, personal God, knowable God. Now they, they have stone temples. They have an altar to the unknown God. They hadn't come quite that far. So he pulls on some of their poets to back up how far he's gone. Then he's going to go the rest of the trip himself. And the rest of the trip is you better repent because God's going to judge the world by the man that he's ordained. And that's the head of my religion, Jesus Christ. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And he quotes those poets. And there is so much wisdom in that. Paul didn't quote a pagan to honor his religion or his life, the pagan's religion or life, but to confirm natural truth. Paul didn't quote a pagan for his faith, but to use Goliath's sword and Egyptian spoil. How did David kill Goliath? With, Goli with his own sword. Right. 
why not use their own sword on them? How did Moses build the tabernacle in the wilderness? By poor slaves? Where did all that gold come from? For that tabernacle in the wilderness when all they were were a bunch of poor slaves? Because he spoiled Egypt on the way out. So let's use the spoils of Egypt and the sword of Goliath to cut off his own head. And the Apostle Paul, so I love his wisdom. It's wisdom to find the button of your audience and pick the best small pill for it. This doesn't mean a minister of the gospel needs search the dunghill for some rare stone. How much time do you think I spend doing Google searches for Greek philosophers? About three minutes so I could say to you what I just said to you. But it's right there. I just want to tell you, we have it. We can, we can know these things and we can know the sources. We can know the names of them. Paul quoted the Greek poet and seer Epimenides of Crete for the first half of the verse. He quoted Erathus for the second half of the verse. Now, verse 28, it's brilliant. In him we live and move and have our being, a personal God, and we are representatives of him. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. This outstanding rhetorical device by Paul is found in other New Testament scriptures. Where else does he quote a prophet? Where else does Paul quote a prophet? Titus chapter 1, about the Cretans. A Cretan prophet said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. For Paul, a foreigner to say that about the Cretans, wouldn't have gone over quite as well. But for him to quote a prophet of the Cretans that said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies, not exactly politically correct language for a nation when you're standing there on, in there or writing to a, a preacher that you have there, but he did that. Verse 29, for as much then, let me draw a conclusion from your logical awareness that God that created all things cannot dwell in a temple made with hands, neither, since he giveth life and breath to all men, can he receive anything from your hands to sustain him or to help him. This personal God is, affair, is active in the affairs of all nations, as your own poets have said, that we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And so Paul appeals to them, and he draws a conclusion. For as much then, if we live and move and have our being in him, if, according to the last part of verse 28, for we are also his offspring, and Paul's going to use it, for as much then as we are the offspring of God. Because these poets, whether in ignorance, whether in malice, or whether in truth, had stated the truth. And so Paul used it to present the truth. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, like your poets have said, and we know that, God made man in his own image, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. We should not be foolish idolaters or superstitious idolaters with the way that you've approached the worship of God. You want to know about my religion? You want to know about Jesus Christ? I'll tell you. I worship the living God. He created all things and doesn't need your temples. He gives life and breath to all creatures. He doesn't need your He's not worshiped with hands. He's involved in all the affairs of nations, and the reason is that he's knowable, and he's driving you to him. He's giving you all the evidence and the witness that you should approach him and seek him, but not with something as stupid, as ignorant, as the unknown God. 
He's knowable because your own prophets have said, for in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. For as much then as that is a true statement, and to summarize everything I have said thus far, you shouldn't think that the Godhead is like gold, silver, or stone, or something graven by men. He is an invisible spirit. He's operating outside of our senses. And the times of this ignorance, this ignorance that I started off my speech with, whom ye ignorantly worship, I now declare unto you, the times of this ignorance God winked at. Remember back there in uh, Acts chapter 14, he said to them, which in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. The God of heaven allowed it. The true and living God allowed it. But he's not allowing it anymore. He allowed it for 4,000 years. And so John, and our learning from John, comes to bear on this, where Jesus told them, now is the judgment of this world. Paul was judging the most intellectual crowd of this world. And John chapter 16, where Jesus told his apostles, you'll be full of the Holy Ghost, and you will go out and reprove the world. And here he is reproving the world of their ignorance. And so it all ties together in the Bible. But we have this truth. Do we love this God? Do we see the, the logical chain that Paul is building? And are you willing to go tell someone else about it? Like Paul did. The times of this ignorance God winked at. For 4,000 years, he sent his revelation only to his own people, only to Israel. They only had scripture, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That is why I have come from Palestine. I have traveled through Cilicia and through Galatia and through Mysia and through Macedonia. And that's why I'm here in Athens to tell you about the true and living God. He once winked at this kind of stuff. He overlooked you. He's not overlooking anyone anymore. He's commanding all men to repent. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. What a fantastic seven-step approach in a few verses to present a new religion involving Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Ignorance, creation, providence, knowability, repent, judgment, Christ. Seven beautiful, powerful. Right. He, knew, he knew that he had a limited audience. He appealed to a prop. He appealed to quotations of their, poet, their poets and prophets. And he brings it to a conclusion. What you don't know that I'm telling you about is this God that you can easily and instantly accept that a creator God is not worshipped in a stone temple that a providential God doesn't need your gifts because he's giving those things to you, that he's involved in all the affairs of men, which is why Macedonia went from goat herders to rule the world and wonder where's the next world to conquer and is back to goat herding. Why that happens? That they might seek him. That they, they might happily find him. That they might by chance find him because he's not very far from every one of you. Just like your own poets have said, we're the offspring of God. For as much as we're the offspring of God, any graven image and any gold or silver is not proper worship. Worship has to be in spirit. 
Now let me tell you the rest of it. Because this God has appointed a day. Am I making this simple? Do you see this just flowing toward this last statement? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world, including you Athenians, in righteousness. Not your definition of right or wrong. He doesn't care about Epicureanism. He doesn't care about Stoicism. He doesn't care about Aristotle or anyone else. He's going to judge in righteousness by his definitions. And he's going to judge by a man, the head of my religion. God has a man that's going to come and judge this world. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's ordained to be judge. I wish I could bring back everything that we covered in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, John chapter 5, other chapters in John where Jesus said, The Father hath committed all, all judgment into my hands. This God has a son. This God's son is a man. God was made manifest, justified in the spirit, raised from the dead, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. He's given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. God's assured all men that he has a man that he's ordained to judge this world, that when he sent this man into this world, his name was Jesus of Nazareth. I have seen him alive after his resurrection. This world killed him. God is sending that man back to judge this world in righteousness. And he's commanding all men everywhere to repent, including you Athenians. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Three responses. They mocked him. Scoffers, scorners. Others, postponers, procrastinators like Felix and Agrippa. Felix said, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you again. Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. This is what you're going to meet with. You're going to meet with scorners and scoffers that ridicule you and call you a babbler and mock what you tell them. You're going to meet others that say, that's interesting. I'll talk to you about it again later. Why don't you bring me something more to read or to think about? And then you're going to get a text. Could you meet me after work? And you're going to find a Dionysius or a Damaris and others with them. This is Paul preaching to the Gentiles and being believed down in the world. This is the gospel that we understand and know all these details and so much more. But he said enough that some born-again souls there by these names and associated with them clave to Paul, clave to him. They embraced him and wanted to be with him and followed him out of that assembly and believed. God has given us in Acts chapter 17 a philosophy that crushes the philosophers of the world 
He's given us in the last few services I've been with you the truth against Roman Catholicism. We have so much truth and we ought to share it. Paul showed us the superiority and integrity of the gospel in form and content on Mars Hill. The seven, I hope you'll remember them. We want to close with Luke's explanation here that all men everywhere ought to repent through Paul. We've named our website appropriately. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Let's love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he's preached. To men that didn't know anything about him, the apostle approached it very carefully in a seven-step process that led them to him. He doesn't even say his name in what Luke recorded, but he'd already said that name in the marketplace. And so those that had heard there could share with the ones at Mars Hill and put it together. And there was enough said that several of them got up and left that company to join the company of the apostles. And we're part of that company today. We have been brought into union, mystic sweet communion. As we sang in one of our songs with the spirits of just men made perfect to have fellowship with the father and with his son and with the apostles that our joy may be full. We have the best of all worlds that the Lord's given us. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. We want to embrace it ourselves. We want to understand the book of Acts. I want to read the word of God distinctly and give you the sense And I want to press you today to share it with someone else. May Jesus Christ be praised.